Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Everybody. Hi, Dr. Nick. Yes, hello, everybody. It's Dr. Nick here again on Triple R Radiotherapy. I can't fade that intro music until we've heard that wonderful Tijuana trumpet. I absolutely love that bit. Oh, it's, it's lovely to have had those magnificent marinologists for the last hour of aquatic awesomeness. Thank you. And today, it's, it's the wonderful Prudence Deer's turn to take a bit of a breather. But I'm delighted to welcome back to the studio Misdiagnosis, who dragged us off away from the medical coalface. Uh, Misdiagnosis, I gather you've been busy um, arranging your future career. I have, Dr. Nick. Is there something in particular that you were thinking about oh, with I, that? I just wondered what your future direction was going. Just tell the listeners. Well, um, I, I'm very excited. I have been accepted onto the GP training program for 2024. So uh, joining the ranks of Dr. Nick and Dr. Sonia at mm, the... The propaganda's uh, working. <laughs> at the community coal face. <laughs> Actually, that's, uh, that's interesting, isn't it? It means we've got three GP-related hosts on this show. woo <laughs> Win for primary care. (laughs) Now, you've got a very special guest coming in for us in the second half of the show. Tell us that. Oh, sorry. No, in the second half of the show. Oh, the second half of the show. Yes. Okay, we'll skip to the second half of the show. (laughs) Yes, Miss Diagnosis. I am very excited about the second half of the show because we have one of my favourite authors coming in, Dr. Nick. And who is that? That is the wonderful Kaz Cook. Now, I had some of Kaz's books when I was a teenager. And uh, to be totally honest, I thought I was a little bit too sophisticated for them. And I sort of thought, I don't really need, I kind of, I know these things, you know, this, this girl stuff, you know, I know these things. But I would secretly look through the pages and get tips and bits of advice for navigating the teenage years when I was in high school. So we have Kaz Cook coming in for the second half of the show. I'm very excited about that. Excellent. Oh, that, we'll certainly be looking forward to that. She's coming in studio, even better. Um, and <laughs> we have the amazing Dr. Sonia at the other microphone. But I, I can't actually see you probably, Dr. Sonia. There's a glint of something <laughs> coming into my eyes. Just what is it that's sparkling away there? <laughs> yes, yes. I've been ga- engaged for a while, but I recently got my engagement ring appropriately sized. I've been worried to wear it, worried it would break through my gloves at work or I'd lose it. So I thought I'd pop it on just a few weeks before the wedding and see how it feels. <laughs> and how does it feel? Nice and tight, nice and shiny, exactly as it should be. Does it feel like the patriarchy around your hand? Absolutely. <laughs> the patriarchy reigns supreme. Um, my, my partner's actually very jealous. He doesn't get to wear his wedding ring, so perhaps the matriarchy is still working. <laughs> I've actually got a replacement wedding ring because after 37 years, mine fell off and disappeared somewhere. So <clears throat> I'm on wedding ring number two. But the first one lasted 37 years, which I reckon wasn't too bad. Um, Dr. Sonia, you've got a very special guest for us in the studio in the first half of the show. Tell us who we've got. Yes, I do. We're sort of doing a, a full circle of um, the reproductive lifespan, aren't we? So I'm talking to Dr. Alison Archibald, who's a genetic counsellor and researcher today, about genetic carrier screening, which is a test that's done before you become pregnant. And um, that will be a really interesting discussion. Okay, such an important topic. So looking forward to that very much. So, um, excellent. So we'll have Alison on for just a moment. And, and Alison, actually, you're sitting there. Say hello to our listeners, Alison. Yeah, hello. Um, it's lovely to be here and thanks for having me. Thank you very much for coming into the Triple R studios early on a Sunday morning. Hope last night wasn't too big a night.
tonight, was it? I have young children, so we're all in bed early. <laughs> well, we'll be talking to you very soon. I remember, if you'd like to get in touch with us, do please visit us a text on our text line, which is 0466981027, because we love hearing from you. Get those nimble thumbs working, and I've got an extra incentive for you. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Ah, uh, yes, it's the Dog Pouch Out out here on 3 R. It's six minutes past ten and I've got misdiagnosis. Who's got a Dog Pouch Out out for us? Oh, I'm so excited about this one, Dr Nick. I mean, look, I don't think you can call the reception area of the hospital a dog park. <laughs> and yet, it was there that I encountered the wonderful Simba the therapy dog oh. with Simba's owner, Rosanna. So Simba is a beautiful Cocker Spaniel and Simba had a little ID tag on with volunteer Simba and a photo of Simba. Oh, he's a hardworking professional. He's a hardworking <laughs> professional. He's doing his best. He's working nine to five at the coalface and he came over and we sat down in the middle of reception at the hospital I was working at and I my pages were going off and I ignored them and I gave him a big tummy rub and he rolled over and it was probably the best five minutes I had at all week, to be honest. I think they're becoming more common, aren't they? Therapy dogs at the hospital. They are. And sometimes I feel like the doctors benefit from them just as much as the patients, <laughs> if I'm totally honest. I've had a couple come into the office. I've sort of collared them when they've been on the ward and said, you know, do you reckon you can come in and... So that was quite a good pun, that, collared them. <laughs> <laughs> Both the dog and the owner and said, come in and we need a hug with the therapy dog as well. And they're so It's so lovely to see them back in the hospital. They were gone for a little bit with COVID. So mm. nice to have the therapy dogs back. And thank you very much to Sim and Rosanna for prowling the halls. Can you just clarify that? Gone during COVID? Why? There were most services, most volunteer services were shut down due to increased infection risk. So if you've got an owner with a dog going room to room uh, to room, yes. uh, that's also probably the coronavirus going room to room to room. Oh, I suppose so. Well, yeah. I'm very, very glad to hear that Simba's back and I'm very glad that Simba is providing therapy, not just for the patients, but for the staff as well. Very important. Okay. <laughs> I, I, did have, I did have one astute listener who said that triple R, 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 R should stand for rough, rough, rough. <laughs> Which I thought was spot on. The dogs are taking over. So they should. Absolutely. Are you listeners? You are fantastic. All right. I think it might be time for a little bit of news. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Yeah, no pill's going to cure you ill, but Dr. Sonia is. What have you got for us in the news today, Dr. Sonia? Yeah, my news today is about understanding what's in your genes so you can make informed choices about family planning. And as I said before, it's called genetic carrier screening. It's a test you can do before you become pregnant that Mm -hmm. looks at some of your genes and possibly your partner's genes to determine the chance of your baby having a serious inherited genetic disorder, like cystic fibrosis might be one that listeners might have heard of. And the news is that this test used to be prohibitively expensive. It used to be almost $400. And as of the first of this month, the three gene test is now completely covered by Medicare. So it's free for most people. And we're going to talk to an expert later in the show. But misdiagnosis, you recently had an experience from the patient side with genetic carrier screening, didn't you? Can you tell us about that? I just want to clarify when we say it's in your genes for family planning, we're not talking about the things that cause the baby to be conceived. We're talking about your DNA. So just in case any (laughs) listeners were wondering. Anyway, back to my story with some of this genetic genetic screening. So, I, I mean, 
I got married earlier this year and one of the things my partner and I spoke about were sort of next steps after marriage and some family planning bits and pieces. So I thought, oh, well, you know, I'll go see my GP and just in preparation get some uh, antenatal screening tests and some preconception and sort of preconceiving screening test done. So that's looking at things like, have I been exposed to certain viruses? Are my immune cells up to scratch when it comes to things like um, rubella. I don't hold a rubella tighter very well, so you know I always need an extra rubella vaccine and some of those bits and pieces I knew about. And then I saw when I saw my GP, she said, oh, well, have you considered genetic screening, genetic carrier screening? And I sort of scratched my head and said, oh, I think there might be some cystic fibrosis somewhere in the family down the line. And she said, well, look, uh, you know, here's the thing. Some GPs, they, they have a lot of experience with this and some of them, you know, can say, you know, do this, this and this and others have less experience and I'm kind of in the middle somewhere so go away and have a read I'll give you a pathology script for the uh, the genetic screening test and you choose which one you want to do but go do some reading and decide which one you want to do and I went away and I thought oh shit actually don't really know which one I want to do there's the, sort of the three tests there's the 500 test there's the 1000 test and of course they come with increasing price points at that stage as well this was before the um, they had gone on to Medicare and I sort of sat down and thought I don't know if I want to know about 500 different genetic variants or a thousand but the three seems pretty good and you know a bit of family history of cystic fibrosis so let's go with that one and I went and got the blood tests done and that was all fine and my GP had said look if it all comes back normal I'll just send you a text and I'll say it's all it's all normal and then if there's anything abnormal um, you know I'll give you a call and ask you to come in so of course I got a text saying it was abnormal Uh, which was maybe two weeks before my wedding. And I think the reason I wanted to talk about this was as someone who has, you know, I I would say fairly good health literacy, um, I found this quite a difficult and um, quite a sort of distressing process to go through, getting this text result saying it's something's abnormal, not knowing what was abnormal, not actually being able to see my GP for a couple of weeks, partly due to the wedding and also just availability of GPs. As we all know, that's really tricky. Normally I'm on the other side of it telling people I know it's really tricky to see your GP and that must be really distressing. Being on the other, you know, that sort of patient side of it going, oh, crap, this is actually really distressing and I can't get in to see my GP what's abnormal and then trying to avoid googling what what the next stages were doctors looking to dr google which we all do as we know 100 percent, yeah and eventually going in and getting my results back which were probably as expected that i was a carrier for cystic fibrosis and then the next step was my partner being screened and again it was a similar process of well he'll go in if it's all fine we'll send you a text saying it's all fine and then we, he went in, he had his blood test and then we waited a week and then we waited two weeks and then we waited, you know, three weeks and then it was sort of four weeks and I was going, oh my God, they're doing karyotype testing, they're doing all sorts of things, what's happening? It must be really rare and abnormal because they haven't called us, something must be wrong. They'd just forgotten to send the text. Oh, no. Or we hadn't received the text oh, or there was a muck up in some of the communication. But the which is a very normal thing. You know, we've all experienced this from a medical side of things. You know, I'm really sorry it didn't go through and that must be really distressing and I apologise. But from the other side of it, sitting there thinking, what does this mean for us? Are we going to have to go under IVF, you know, go through the IVF process? Are we going to be able to afford IVF? What does that even look like? You know, I'm sort of in my early 30s. This isn't something my friends mostly at this stage of my life are going through. I just found the whole thing probably more distressing than I had anticipated. And I didn't actually know, apart from seeing my GP, where or when to get help along this process. So 
I thought it was just an interesting thing to share, uh, just to start off this conversation before we speak to the experts about it, um, to say that, you know, these things, whilst we might talk about them on radio with patients as a kind of straightforward, well, then you just do this, this and this, there are lots of, I think, hidden costs to these things. And not at all that it's a bad idea or a bad thing to go through. My partner was negative, by the way. But that, um, actually, it, it comes with a lot more, I think, emotional distress maybe than we had initially anticipated. So that's um, a very, very personal roundup about it. If we go back to what's available for people, um, this new test, just remind listeners what it is that they can have and how they can go about that. Yeah, so we're certainly going to get into all the details of the test and what it means, but it's the three-gene carrier test that tests for three specific genes that we'll talk about that's now funded under Medicare. Okay, thank you. Um, so we'll talk about that more in just a minute. So thank you very much, Miss Diagnose. It's a very interesting personal story. We'll come back to that. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. It's just after quarter past 10 here on 3RRR 102.7. You're in the studio with me, Dr. Nick. We have Dr. Isabel. Oh, don't misdiagnosis. <laughs> <laughs> and Dr. Sonia. And Dr. Sonia, um, you've brought this wonderful guest in for us. So take it away. Yes, I have. I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Alison Archibald, who is a genetic counsellor and researcher at the Victorian Clinical Genetic Services and the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Ali leads a team providing genetic counselling regarding non-invasive prenatal screening. Some listeners might know that as NIPT and reproductive genetic carrier screening, which we'll be talking about today. And she works with laboratory colleagues to ensure effective delivery of reproductive genetic testing services, which we've heard from misdiagnosis is extremely important. And her research involves improving clinical utility and accessibility of genetic screening and uh, my personal favourite, understanding patient experiences. Ali, welcome to Radiotherapy. It's great to have you here today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So today we're talking about genetic carrier screening, and this is a topic that's really important to me as a GP who values reproductive autonomy. But like so many things, more technology often poses new challenges and dilemmas in terms of bringing the best outcomes for our patients. So we were talking earlier, Ali, as GPs, for couples planning a pregnancy, we recommend or we're supposed to recommend to all couples or women genetic carrier screening before they become pregnant. And that's partially because the vast majority of babies born with serious inherited conditions have no family history at all. But can you explain to us going back what genetic carrier screening is? What is the test? So basically what genetic carrier screening is, it's it's a genetic test um, for the reproductive couple. So that is um, the two people who would be the genetic parents of the pregnancy or planned pregnancy. Um, And I'm using that kind of language to just acknowledge that families come in all different shapes and sizes. Um, So it's important that we're understanding who we're offering the screening to. And it's basically to look to see whether together as a reproductive couple, they would have an increased chance of having children with a serious genetic condition. And it can be a blood test or a swab, is that right? Correct. So um, we can extract DNA from blood or saliva. 
Um, they're, they're both just the same in terms of test accuracy. What's really cool about testing via saliva is that we can post kits out in the mail and have them returned in the mail. And so what's been really nice is that's really made genetic testing a lot more accessible across the country. And it's allowed us to get genetic testing out there to people in remote or regional areas that otherwise would have had to travel quite a long way to have a blood test. And that's really an equity issue, isn't it? Making sure that our technological advances uh, reach everyone regardless of their postcode. Do they need a GP referral for the postal saliva kit? Yeah, so it's exactly the same process in terms of organising the testing. It's just a a different sample. Mm. Um, So yes, everybody needs, um, if they're wanting to access testing that's covered under Medicare, they need to have a test request form filled out by their medical practitioner um, and Um, and then obviously uh, organise their sample collection, whether that's a blood sample or a saliva sample. Mm. And this test is different. I want to explain again. It's different to the prenatal testing. So the first trimester combined screening, which many women or couples might remember as a blood test and an ultrasound done early in pregnancy to check for the risk of Down syndrome and other abnormalities of the chromosomes. But this genetic carrier screening test is done before pregnancy as part of the pre-pregnancy visit, which lots of my patients don't realise is a really important part of uh, planning a family, is coming in before you're pregnant. And We sort of have talked about there's a few options between just the three main genes if you're able to to pay for it. So what what are the three genes that are tested in the now Medicare-funded test and what are the additional 500 plus 1,000 plus tests that are available? So it's a really good question and I think one of the things that's really interesting at the moment in terms of how genetic Um, information is kind of coming into mainstream healthcare is we're seeing lots of different options and I think over time we'll see things settling down a bit and we'll have um, I guess things will become a little bit more standard Um, but right now um, we have this new Medicare rebate which we're really excited about because genetic carrier screening has been something that's been inaccessible to people for a really long time and so to get to a point where we actually have funded testing and taking that cost away as a barrier is really exciting so for those the three conditions Conditions that are covered, they are cystic fibrosis, fragile X syndrome, and spinal muscular atrophy. Now, the reason that um, these are the three that are covered is because these are the most common inherited conditions um, in our population um, that can be screened for, and there's really good tests available and really good, robust scientific evidence to support the idea of offering screening. So that's why those are the three. Because of um, major improvements in technology, we're now able to actually screen for a much larger number of genes in a single test. And so we have a number of different options that exist um, for screening for a much larger number of genes. And so generally, to sort of group the different options together, there are a number of tests that sit around that kind of 500 gene mark, and then um, some that sit around that 1,000 gene mark. Um, And it's really looking at, um, I guess, how much information do people want? Um, What's interesting is that we know through some research that we've done recently that those three common conditions um, actually are really only the tip of the iceberg in terms of genetic chance for other conditions. Um, So I was part of a research study called McKenzie's Mission recently, um, and we screened for over a 1,000 genes. Um, And what we found is that in couples who were found to have an increased chance for these conditions, 80% of couples, um, excuse me, were not at risk for those three conditions. It was a a different 
condition. And so if we only screen for the three, um, we're really missing, or there's a possibility for missing um, a lot more useful information. So we're hoping that this is just the beginning and we will have um, more access in the future to screening for a much larger number of conditions. Yeah, and I think um, you've explained it so so well and so clearly. I think um, what I try to express to patients is that this is information to help you, if you want to know, to help you look into what the options are. And the three uh, conditions, so it's spinal muscle muscular atrophy, yep. cystic fibrosis, and fragile X, and those are chosen because they have significant health implications for the baby or the child that parents might want to consider. If they do the test, the three, the 500, the 1,000, what result do they get? What can they expect uh, a result to look like? So that's a really interesting question, and we're actually seeing a bit of a shift in how we provide genetic carry screening at the moment. Um, so up until now, it's been very much about screening the individual and providing individuals with information. But what we've learned from that is that the more we screen for, the more information we get. It's not really surprising. So if you screen for around 500 conditions, you're finding that over 70% of people are coming back as carriers for at least one condition, if not more. And if you screen for over 1,000 conditions, almost everybody is a carrier for something. So it's actually not very informative to screen people individually. What's really important is screening them together as a couple. So what we're moving towards is more of a reproductive couple-based screening approach where you screen both of the genetic parents together um, and uh, assess their genetic results together and then that will provide information about whether there's an increased chance of having children with the condition. So I think that's the way that things are going to go. So um, what we'll start to see is it's actually a much simpler result. You're not getting a huge ream of information. You're just getting are you together um, do you have an increased chance of having children with these conditions or not? So my next question with this, having gone through you know, part of this process myself, is sort of then what? Let's just say that both the, the, the reproductive couple is at risk of a certain condition and you, know, you figure out a, the probability risk. What's the next step? They come in, they see their GP and that, you know, they say, look, unfortunately you're both carriers for X. What happens next? So that's where genetic counsellors come in. And, um, you know, obviously I have a bias here as a genetic counsellor, but that's where I would love to see people referred for genetic counselling. Um, because what we are there to do is really talk people through what that information means and help them to understand what their reproductive options are. Um, so some people will get this information and they will just use it to inform um, their future planning. They might not change any choices that they would make, but it will allow them to prepare for the possibility of having children with these conditions. Um, others will use it to actually change the choices that they would make. Um, and so it kind of depends on the particular situation people are in. So if they're already pregnant, they have the option of testing the pregnancy. Um, if the pregnancy does have the condition, they have the option to choose to end that pregnancy. Um, if people are not pregnant when they get this information, um, they do have a wider range of options available to them. And that's where that idea of preconception healthcare becomes really important. Um, so they can choose to go through IVF and have something called pre-implantation genetic testing, um, which means the embryos can be tested and those that wouldn't have the condition can then be implanted. 
There are also a range of other options available, um, like um, using a donor, um, say donor egg, sperm or embryos, um, adoption, foster care, um, or, or some might choose not to have children or maybe not to have any more children. So what we're, we are seeing is that some couples might have two children and then they have carrier screening and they say, actually, do you know what, based on this information, we might not have a third child. Um, but in my experience, generally people don't choose not to have children at all. It's more that they're choosing a reproductive option uh, either to help inform them or, or to reduce the chance of having a child with the condition. Yeah, something that's really important to me is I have a lot of patients uh, who come in and, and just want all the tests done. So I'm just here for a checkup. Just give me all the tests, Doc, all of them. And it's really important to me. I always tell patients we need to make sure the test is answering the question that we're asking. Um, if we've examined your shoulder and we're pretty sure it's a rotator cuff tendonitis, uh, ultrasound's not going to help us answer the question ex unless something is really unexpected. So I think a big part of this test becoming free, funded and accessible, which is fabulous, is that us as health practitioners um, ensure that the, the the question being asked uh, is something that the patient is aware of and then we figure out how to answer it with the help of someone who probably did much better at Punnett squares and genetics than we did. <laughs> I'm not sure about you, um, Isabel. Do you remember the Punnett squares of the big B and the little the B? Square, but mm. I also realise I'm, you know, I stuffed up even in the intro talking about the genetics. I was like, oh, that's you know, I said the wrong terminology <laughs> even then. So it it, ha it didn't stay with me a lot of the genetics. Yes, well, doctors are humans too, so that, that's, that's okay. But how do we make sure that um, patients are making an informed decision when they get this test? And where can our listeners go for more information? So um, I think it's really important, I should say I do love a good Punnett square, um, but yeah, I think it's really important that people are actually thinking about the type of information they're going to get from this testing. So what we see a lot, um, and we've done a fair amount of research on this, um, is that people are going into genetic testing, whether that be carrier screening or um, NIPT, for example, and just thinking, this is a test I need to do, um, alongside all the other things I need to do, either before pregnancy or in early pregnancy, and kind of checking another thing off the list. Um, and so people are generally unprepared for getting a carrier result, um, you know, as, as we saw in your earlier experience, um, misdiagnosis. Um, and so that's a really normal situation to be in. Um, and so what I would encourage people to do is actually have a bit more of a think about, okay, I'm having this test. Why am I having this test? What information is it going to give me? And really speak to your partner about it as well. Um, because it's important that you go into it on the same page. Um, it's a lot harder to work through this information um, once you're in a situation where you're already under stress. So just thinking about it, it doesn't have to be a huge conversation, but just a bit of a conversation about what, what are we going to get from this? Is it going to be useful to us? And, and how are we going to manage in that situation? There are some good resources uh, available to help people kind of navigate this. Um, so there's a website called carriascreening.org.au, which has some really good general information about carrier screening. Um, I'm at Victorian Clinical Genetic Services. There's good information about carrier screening on our website. Um, and then for healthcare practitioners out there, the RACGP has Beware the Rare, um, which is a campaign about carrier screening. Um, and that's a really useful education resource as well. 
Alison, that's such a fabulous summary. Thank you very much. We could talk about this for the entire programme without any difficulty at all, but sadly that's all we do have time for. Um, there's been a text from one of our wonderful listeners saying to, um, to misdiagnosis, thank you for your personal story. I think all patients want to know that their experts and doctors understand how distressing mistakes or lack of comprehensive communication is such an important point. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. It's 10.37 here on 3RRR. You're in the studio with me, Dr Nick. We have Dr Sonia, we have Misdiagnosis, and we have the extraordinary Kaz Cork. So take it away, Misdiagnosis. I am so excited for this one, Dr Nick. So Kaz is a best-selling author, cartoonist, and broadcaster. Her career began at the age as a cadet reporter before she published several best-selling advice books, including my favourite, Girl Stuff. So I actually had a copy of Girl Stuff when I was in high school, which I loved for its candid, no-nonsense advice on everything from boys to shopping. And even my favourite chapter, How to Get Your Parents to Take You More Seriously. Uh, Did it work? Ah, I don't know, Dr. Nick. (laughs) It's not (laughs) evidence-based. Well, we've graduated from Girl Stuff today, and we're talking about her new book, It's the Menopause, What You Need to Know in Your 40s, 50s, and Beyond. So welcome to Radiotherapy, Kaz Cook. Hello, my qualified friends. (laughs) (laughs) So I first learned about menopause, I think, from Sex and the City when I was in my 20s. Oh, goodness me. What a wonderful place to learn everything practical about yourself. I actually think it's where I got your book and Sex and the City was where I got most of my life advice. So I think the character so Samantha... So your parents were completely useless. Well, they never took me seriously. So, But Samantha had chemotherapy and then she started experiencing hot flushes and that was the extent of my understanding of what menopause right, was at okay. the time. And now that you've qualified as a doctor, do you have a better understanding, would I'd you probably say? Probably only partially better, if I'm totally honest. But why don't you start us off from the beginning? What is perimenopause and menopause? So menopause is what doctors say when you haven't had... Uh, a period for at least a year. So that's the technical definition of menopause. Um, It's not the opposite of puberty, but it's the end of having periods uh, rather than having the start. So perimenopause is just one of those um, words with a a, a prefix that's Greek or Latin, Um, and it just means about. But really the way we understand it is usually before we go through the menopause, Um, just the time leading up to it when we start having all sorts of um, mental, uh, physical, uh, emotional um, symptoms. Uh, Some people don't get many. Some people get heaps. Some people get it for 15 or more years. Um, It's a a very individual um, experience. But I think we now know – I mean, they didn't even know what hormones were till the 1930s. So we're only – we're less than 100 years past that and we're still working out what are all the symptoms that are connected to hormones and the menopause? So basically it means that 50% of women um, and other people, non-binary people and some trans people, are going to go through something that they don't know enough about and their doctors might not know enough about. So in the tradition of Up the Duff and Babies and Toddlers and, and Girl Stuff in a way, I wanted to write a book that was not only uh, checked by medical experts and psychiatric and uh, other experts, but also I ended up doing a survey of nine thousand, almost nine thousand women. So it's not a scientific survey, but it was very useful to find out what people were going through, what they thought, 
bad experiences, good experiences they'd had with doctors, all of that kind of stuff. So that's where the that's where the book came from. And you got over seventy five thousand responses, written responses oh. to this so, so, survey. Yeah, so almost nine thousand people, and the, and almost seventy five thousand written responses, rather than just tick a box. Yeah. Um, what was it like reading those responses? Uh, it's such a good question because it was a really mixed feeling. Like I cried at what some people had been through and people who'd been told you can't be going through menopause, it's too early, and then had had another 15 years of really difficult symptoms. Um, sometimes I was really surprised. There was uh, an 80-year-old woman who was still getting hot flushes and no one had ever – people just said, oh, yeah, that happens. Um I laughed at some, a, a lot of, and, and I felt really what I wanted to, which was part of a community of um, women who were sharing their experiences. Um, and I got a much better handle on what people were going through and what, what they believed and how much they weren't being helped through that time. So many of them, for example, said, what, can I, what natural thing can I take that does the same as pharmaceuticals? And no one had told them that in terms of changing your hormones, a herbal supplement won't do it. It won't, it won't tackle uh, severe symptoms. And so that's, I mean, people should know that before they start spending money. I think one of the things I enjoyed most about the book was the human experience that sits alongside the evidence-based advice that's in there. And that as I was reading through it, I think I didn't realise what a variety of experience women have around yeah. perimenopause and menopause. And you'd have side by side some people having an awful time of something and someone having a wonderful experience with a different aspect of menopause itself. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I mean, I, I did sort of struggle with, should I put some of the quotes in the book that are actually bonkers? Like <laughs> one woman who said, if you only eat uh, yellow vegetables, you won't go through menopause which would be so helpful if it was true. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to put that into Dr. Google and see what this says. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so I've, be, I've tried to be very gentle, but if there was something like that, I always put a comment from me in brackets afterwards. Um, yeah, so... It, and some of that was based on wrong information, but some of it... I mean, everyone brings their philosophy to something, right? So they bring... Well, I want a, a pill to cure all of this. Well... MHT, menopausal hormone therapy, which is kind of the new name for HRT, um, that doesn't cure all of the symptoms that that happen during menopause. And in my own experience, you know, I had this itchy skin and I never connected it to hormones. I just and, – and I had the brain fog early on, what, like years before I had a hot flush. So – but – you know, I've realised that there are some things that MHT can help with and some that can't. I mean, a lot of people think if they take MHT, they will look younger and their hair will get better. And, and th you know, that's not true, but that's a, that's a really common misunderstanding of what... I had no idea that would yeah. have thought that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and then there's a lot of uh, wellness books and a lot of wellness nonsense, like the... Um, what was really interesting, though, misdiagnosis was the... There was almost there was a um, complete consensus among the very small amount of people who had tried so-called uh, vaginal laser therapy for dry vagina. Sorry, sorry, what? I've... Oh, you've got to get onto this. Well, not literally, um, <laughs> not personally, Doctor Nick. But women are being told um, that they have these. Uh, so they put a laser inside the vagina and and create low level burns on the skin. 
and then that heals itself, which for a little while makes um, the vagina more moist. It's absolutely, even if it did work, which it does not, the first independent studies show it does none of that. It doesn't help any urinary symptoms. So the sneaky wee that none of us expect from menopause, especially women who haven't had um, pregnancies going full term, you know, they think that that having a wee when you sneeze or cough or otherwise, when when you'd really rather not, frankly, um, there are uh, things that you can do, really simple things like um, an in-vagina estrogen cream can deal with both of those symptoms. But this one of the, one of the brand names for this thing is Mona Lisa Touch for oh this laser God. thing. So people actually get it. If it goes right, you get a low-level burn. If it goes wrong, you get a terrible burn. And that people are paying hundreds and of dollars. Scar tissue and, and oh yeah, goodness. and my um, a, a, a guy I know who's a, a, a gynecologist and obstetrician. He told me that they come to his rooms to try and lease him one of the laser machines, <sighs> and it was one hundred and fifty thousand dollars for a year. And that, so that's what you've got to make back, and that's why it's costing hundreds of dollars per so-called treatment and then you're supposed to go back you know have another one in six Mm -hmm. weeks and another one in you know it's it's i'm and there are some things like that and then people because they're embarrassed to talk about it right so they want to they buy these little devices to uh, supposedly to help them with pelvic floor exercises but they're not fitted by a pelvic floor Mm. um physio um they might have the opposite problem they might need to learn how to relax everything before they learn how to you know um, clench in an elegant fashion. Um, so yeah, it's to me there was, and, and to hear the women in the in the survey talk about mm. what they tried and what they hadn't tried, but but universally all the ones who tried this, you know, laser thing, which I think is nonsense, said it, there was no effect. So let's talk about some of the symptoms of menopause because I was surprised at the breadth of symptoms that were mentioned in the book. And I went to the RACGP website to see what they were teaching. So I'm in GP training next year, but haven't started my formal GP training yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember from medical school, hot flushes, osteoporosis risk and date of last menstrual period. That that was sort of my recollection about yeah. menopause teaching. Yeah. And I was surprised at the breadth of symptoms, you know, the, the itchy skin, anxiety and mood changes. Were there symptoms that you had discovered uh, what, going through the surveys that you hadn't heard about before? No, but the people who filled in the surveys said, oh, my God, I didn't know this was a symptom of menopause mm. and I've got it. Yeah, I think um, the one that uh, people... The, the, it was the mental symptoms that often appear before anything like um, a hot flush or night sweats or insomnia, which is you know, one of the other things that drives women mad, and the and the dry vagina and other reasons why your sex life might implode a bit. Um, sorry, what was the, <laughs> about I've got brain fog? Yeah, so <laughs> the, the mental, the mental. So people were kind of going. I I thought I was losing myself. Mm. I didn't feel myself. And there's a lot of. Um, Similar phrases in the survey, which I didn't prompt, but women said, I didn't feel myself. I didn't know who I was. Uh, Women talked about withdrawing from friendship groups um, as part of their lack of confidence, which I think is a great question for GPs to ask um, because it might not be something that you normally think about. But um, And uh, other women had 
realised that they were now much more anxious about driving somewhere they'd never driven before. Women very having a really tough time at work because hot flushes can look like an anxiety attack or someone fibbing if you don't if you don't have a more sophisticated understanding. For those of you who've just tuned in, uh, you're listening to the absolutely wonderful Kaz Cook talking about her new book, It's the Menopause, and you'll be hearing more from Kaz in just a moment. Triple R. Uh, it's 10 to 11 here on 3 Triple R uh, Radiotherapy. It's me, Dr. Nick, in the studio with Dr. Sonia, misdiagnosis, and the completely extraordinary Kaz Cook. And Kaz, you mentioned before the mic switched on, um, talking to me as a GP, oh, I had a really negative experience with a GP somewhere along the track, and I'm always interested to hear what that experience is, why sure. it was negative. Go on, give it to us. Oh, barrels. well, look, I was very aware of it because it's, you know, there's a whole page in the It's the Menopause book about what questions to ask your GP. And if you're not getting reasonable answers to them, then you need to find another GP. And, you know, there were lots of women who sent in quotes saying they love their GP. They were, you know, they'd made such a difference to their life. And they were so grateful to have that partner in their healthcare. But others who had sent women away and said, oh, you're too young, and which is ridiculous at any age. Um, and you know, you've just got to put up with it. No, you're not. And here's some antidepressants after seeing you for 30 seconds and whatever. So anyway, I thought I'll go and talk to a uh, a new GP. And so I went in and I talked about, you know, feelings of anxiety and told him that I'd written the book and that I had to sort out, you know, how I anxiety before public speaking and stuff like that. Anyway, that was mainly what I was there for. And, you know, and he ordered some tests, but then at the end, and and then he, he burnt off a couple of little things on my neck and sort of gave me a massage on my shoulders. And I'm so glad that all of you, including Dr. Sonia, have just gone, your faces are going, I beg your pardon. And everyone in the studio is leaning back on a 45 degree angle. But And then, which I thought, oh, okay, maybe he's just a bit, whatever. No. And, and then I got up to leave and he came over as I was at the door and gave me a hug. And I was just gobsmacked. I thought, aside from infection control, of God knows who else had been in it, but it was so... And I'm a lot older than him, so it's not... I don't think it was sexual, but... Who, it sounds patronising. It was patronising, this it diagnosis. so And then I spoke to another person who'd been to him, uh, two other people. One was a young woman... He'd, hug, he'd asked and then hugged her, but she was so discombobulated, she kind of went, oh, sure. And then a man had been to see him who didn't have that experience. So, again, I don't think it was sexual, but I just think, to me, that was like, you know, in, it was just like the roller door coming down. You know, then I had to go and, you know, I'm now seeing another, <laughs> found another GP. But regardless of what he thought he was doing, and he did have a bit of a vibe of, a, a vibe of you know, a groovy chaplain. Um, <laughs> you know, he wouldn't have been surprised if he'd got a guitar out. Um, Sing away the skin cancer. just not on. It's just Well, I'm really sorry right. that that was your experience. Because oh, I, I'm sure it's on the very low level of... Well, I mean, it was the ick, right? It was just nuts. I, the boundary well, being I, I, crossed. I think it's more than that. I th- I think that's actually diminishing it a bit. I think we, which is as, what women do, right? We yeah. Go, oh, as it? medical, pro- you know, I don't think I've ever hugged a patient. First and foremost, I've put my hand on someone's shoulder, and that's about I think 
the furthest I'll go I because mean, there it, is a there is yeah. And I think I think I don't think it's never okay. I mm. think if someone if someone's just given a cancer diagnosis or mm. something to do with your kid and you're crying and then that's a shoulder pat, right? Or you know, depending on, but it was also the first time I'd seen this doctor. I think, so. I think we know when physical contact is. I just, I wish yeah. people could see the expressions in this. I feel validated because I did think it was really weird. But then you do, right? You do try and. And there's a power dynamic. There's exactly. a power differential. And that was particularly with the younger woman, I thought. Yeah. Because I yeah. was older than him. No, I think that's much more than it's just the ick. I think that sounds like a, um, a misjudgment and grossly inappropriate behavior. But I do actually want to throw to the other doctors on the team just about their approach to a menopause consultation, what kind of things you might ask women, what sort of options you might give them, because RACGP sort of said, well, there's the menopause hormonal treatment and then there are antidepressants with the two arms of the on the RACGP algorithm that I had a look at this morning. So uh, maybe we start with Dr Nick. What what would be your approach? It's such a great question and uh, I, I have to be honest, I'm very fortunate I work in a group practice with some fabulous women doctors so what i say to my patients who ask me that question i said that is a excellent question i can give you some basic advice about this stuff but you need much more than basic and we have doctors in this clinic who are much better at this stuff than i am so you really do not want my advice i'm going to refer you to one of my colleagues who will do this job much better so So referring to another gp colleague to to a gp colleague who i know is much more experienced and more detailed in their knowledge because this is a highly complex and nuanced area and you don't want some old white bloke who's got a vague idea of what he'd Learned from a textbook in 1978. But good on on you for also knowing who to refer Mm. to. And Mm. And Dr Sonia? Some of my thoughts rolling around are um, when we talk about the power dynamic, I wonder if a lot of GPs feel uh, shame at their lack of knowledge, uh, feel fear that their patient is more empowered about information they've read online or even written a book about. And I wonder if that results in some truly bizarre and, and inappropriate behaviour. And GP covers so many different conditions that it's only right that we know our boundaries and our limits, but then offer a patient a next step like referring to a colleague. I'll just briefly say what I would do, which is the first thing would be that a menopause consult needs its own appointment. Often it'll come up at the end of a cough or a cold or a burning something off your neck. And that's what I say, like a long appointment's better, isn't it, Sonia? Absolutely. Like a double appointment to have the time. And what I say is that you deserve for us to do this properly. This this is significantly impacting women's lives, often at their peak of their career, um, where they're, you know, on TV, as many people would have seen on the internet, hot flushes while we're talking to the nation. So I say... This, this deserves its own appointment. Um, you mentioned it's too early, but if you've had your last period less than 45 or less than 40, it's even more important that we get onto it urgently because of the impacts on osteoporosis and other factors that misdiagnosis said. Yeah. Cardiovascular risk, absolutely. So just um, without going on and on, because this is a very important topic to me, and I see loads of women who ask, do you do menopause? <laughs> and I, I've been lucky enough to be trained recently where menopause is a big part of our training i'd say it needs its own appointment you go away with a big long list from the australian menopause society with every system australasian menopause sorry thank you the ams yeah um just so people can find it online the australasian menopause society absolutely so both of us can see 
Are they the vasomotor symptoms, so the flushing, the sweats? Are they the emotional, um, you know, like unloved feelings and, and uh, fatigue? Are they the joint pain? Is it the formication, the ants crawling under your skin? <laughs> so we can both get a sense of what's going on, but it's often two or three appointments, and it doesn't have to result in hormone treatment. I do rush to say you don't have actual ants crawling under your skin <laughs> in menopause. <laughs> It is such a great word, though, isn't it? Formication. Um, we have got so many messages coming through, Cass. It's just extraordinary. We've only got a couple of minutes, and I do want to go through a couple of them because uh, these are people desperate to get a copy of your book. And, and but, Yes, we're going to have a little co- competition, but I just want to say you know, to the three doctors in the, in the room here and to all the doctors who are doing the right thing and, and who are curious about their patients and kind um, to their patients, um, thank you because when we find you, it's lovely. Well, that's it. That's a lovely message, Kaz. Thank you. So, um, uh, I'm, just get, I'm not going to read out names because there's some personal stuff in these, but uh, we've got one with us who says, uh, because I'm also a Kaz and about the same age, sadly didn't have children but do have menopause, so finally a book for me. Um, so, Kaz, you Kaz are a winner. Um, and the other one, if I can find it. Oh, I've lost it. <laughs> I know what that that was another amazing thing reading all the replies to the survey is people would share such private things about their sex life or mm. you know what what they'd been you know that they thought they were losing their mind that they had early dementia and um it's like like you except I can't help people in the same way that you do but it's a privilege right mm. to have people come and confide in you and and, and, would, and to I'd be vulnerable enough to ask mm. for help I'd highly recommend this book to any medical practitioners. I, I, I found... I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, Dr. Smack. I, 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 I would love a copy of Cassie's book. I'm 52, science teacher, and, and, and she got me through the perimenopause. I'm not sure how. Help, please, Kaz. So <laughs> OK, that so, sounds like someone who needs oh, one of our goodness, so three we've got, books. We've got so our two well. winners. Um, it's time to wrap up. Um, I've got another 20 questions. No, you have to do them another time. We have to say thank you to our fabulous <laughs> guests. Alison Archibald, Kaz Cook and to the Dr. Nick team, misdiagnosis, uh, and Dr. Sonia. I've been Dr. Nick. Thank you for listening. Um, Radiotherapy will be back next week, but this is actually the last Dr. Nick show for 2023. So on behalf of myself, Prudence, dear misdiagnosis, Dr. Sonia, thank you to our wonderful listeners. Have a safe and joyous festive season. Rush out and buy Kaz's book for your Christmas present for absolutely everybody. And coming up now are those magnificent scientists at Einstein A Go-Go. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.